Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this sermon from God's Word will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. Yes, it's Christ alone, isn't it? If we were to ask that question, how do you know that you're saved? Hopefully, we would all, with resounding confidence in our Lord, say, Jesus, He died for my sins and rose again. That's all I have. The temptation in the Christian life, however, is to drift from that place, to begin to, in our own minds, maybe we would still outwardly answer that question the same way, oh, it's, it's only Jesus, but, you know, I attend church pretty regularly, and I've taught a Sunday school class for whew, a long time, longer than some Christians have been alive. And we might, without realizing it, begin to sort of rest on those activities of the Christian life, those things we've done through the years. It's even possible to begin to answer that question, well, how do you know you're saved? We can even begin to answer that in terms of our part in the salvation story. Well, I, I prayed a prayer. That's how I know I'm saved. I walked an aisle, Right? Those things may have been a part of your salvation story, but who does it all depend on? Jesus. Jesus. This is what Paul is doing in Romans 2 as he continues to peel back the onion of our sin and how deep it really goes just to highlight the the glory of the gospel. He, He turns his attention now to the Jew, and I want you to understand that Paul's uh, purpose here is not to just be a a Jew hater or or to be anti-Semitic. In fact, he himself was a Jew who had become a Christian. And as in his writings, as you read and study what he wrote, it comes through so clearly. He has a deep love for the Jewish people. So this is not intended to be some malicious attack on them. But it does highlight the temptation that comes from having the Word of God and being a member of the people of God. And as he turns his attention to the Jew, he begins to point out to them that the ways that they maybe have been leaning on the fact that they have the law, this uh, probably referring to the Mosaic covenant between them and God. They got the Ten Commandments, and they know, they know how God wanted them to live, and so they're special. Later, he'll begin to talk about, even further back in their history, the Abrahamic covenant. That by circumcision, they identified themselves as descendants of Abraham, the people of God. And that somehow leaning on that identity as a Jew, as a descendant of Abraham, the people of God, they could escape God's judgment. And Paul's going to kind of take all those things off the table and, and remind them, no, God judges based on our actions. And if we've sinned, we deserve His just punishment. doesn't matter your heritage. doesn't matter whether you had the Word of God or not. Or not. As Carter read in, in the Scripture reading, every mouth will be stopped and the whole world is guilty before God. So, though Paul addresses the Jew here, this is particularly a helpful reminder for us as Christians. Because we're not Israel, we're not Jews per se, but we do have the Word of God. And there can be this sense of pride that creeps in in our knowledge of the Scriptures. And in fact, we do have an identity as the people of God, right? When we trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, God, in a good way, gives us a new identity, doesn't He? I'm a child of God, I'm part of the bride of Christ, a member of His body, and I'll reign with Him, and I have an inheritance in heaven, and those are all right things. But we can twist them and let a little pride begin to creep in and think that I'm, I'm a really special person because I have all those things, and I kind of deserved it, didn't I? No, it's just Jesus. 
So let's dig into this text as we begin to see more of our own sinfulness. And as we've been talking about, the point of this, especially as believers studying a section on the bad news, a section on the law, the point is not that we all just are left feeling guilty. The point is that we increase our awe of the gospel. Because as we understand more of our sin, we understand with even more amazement what it was that God did for us in the gospel. So today we increase our awe of the gospel by understanding that confidence in our own religious performance only further reveals our sinful hearts. Confidence in our own religious performance only further reveals the sinfulness of our hearts. That, that we can take gospel truth the grace of God to have given us his word and given us gospel truth and made us his children, that we could take that and become proud of those things just further reveals the twisted, sinful hypocrisy that dwells in our hearts and ought to further increase our awe of the gospel that saves us from ourselves. So let's dig into this text as the Apostle Paul helps us see how religious performance and confidence in ourselves might begin to creep into our thinking. We're going to notice specifically that the, the condemnation here is on the fact that there's a temptation to rely on those things, to, to find confidence in those things. Those are heart words. And as we've been working through uh, Romans 1 and 2, uh, Paul has gone from kind of outward sins and he's getting further into the onion, so to speak, further into our hearts. And now in this text, the main idea is, is that we are relying on the wrong things. This is, this is a sense of trust. What's my heart trusting in? And so we want to uh, ask that question today. Am I trusting in my own religious performance or am I trusting in Christ? Here's why this is such a problem. Number one, relying on our grasp of God's word only highlights our sinful hypocrisy. In this first section, we're going to see how the, the Jews uh, were really proud of the fact that they possessed the word of God. They knew it in and out. They could quote the laws to you and, and how many there were and how to keep them and all these things. They were, they were teachers and they were actually... Uh, placing their confidence in their possession of the Scriptures. Paul says, just having the Scriptures isn't going to do a whole lot for you. <laughs> you got to apply the Scriptures, and even more than that, this has got to be something in your hearts, where you trust in God and not in your grasp of the Scriptures. So let's see what the Apostle Paul has to say, beginning in verse 17. Romans chapter 2, verse 17. Paul now turns his attention to the Jew. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law. There's that heart term. You rely, you depend, you have your confidence in the law. And you make your boast in God. He's saying that they're, they're proud of the fact that they have this special relationship with God. They have the word, they have the law, they know how to relate to God through the law. They're a special people. Notice verse 18, they know his will written in the scriptures. They approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law. So these are all senses of confidence and pride, right? We know the scriptures, we know God's will, we do the things that are excellent because we have the law. And so there's this sense of a, a higher position here because they have the scriptures. But notice their confidence continues in verse 19. They're confident that they are a guide to the blind. Now, here we actually get into some statements that are given to the Jews in the Old Testament. Part of God's purpose in giving the law to Israel was so that they could function as a guide to those that didn't have the law. That they could function as a light in the darkness. Notice the next one that's pointed out. Verse 19, a light to those who are in darkness. Verse 20, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form and knowledge, uh, the form of knowledge and truth in the law. Now, what's interesting is that these phrases about Israel are actually true. God intended that they would be a light in the darkness and a guide to the blind, but what had happened is they had become confident in that role. 
They had become proud of their possession of the scriptures. <laughs> we are, we're mighty Israel. I'm a Jew. I have the word of God and I know what it says and I know I'm a teacher. Right? And so coming into all these scenarios with a reliance on themselves rather than a reliance on the God that the law was intended to reveal to them. And so notice how Paul begins to peel away their blindness, beginning in verse 21. You, therefore, who teach the law, teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? He continues on in verse 22. You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, Do you rob temples? Finally, verse 23, you who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? And then finally, in verse 24, it's as if he's saying, you who claim to be a light in the darkness, a good example to the Gentiles, he says this about them, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. Whoa, Paul just ripped away every form of self-confidence that the Jew might claim. Ah, we know the law, we know its instructions, we approve the things that are excellent, and so Paul begins to tear each of those down. Oh, so you're a teacher of the law, are you? You teach law? Do you teach yourself? And you can taste almost the sarcasm in his voice as he begins to peel away their blindness to their own sin. Oh, you teach that everyone shouldn't uh, commit adultery or that everyone shouldn't steal or, or that there shouldn't be idolatry. And then he begins to point out how they're doing these things. Do you steal? Oh, yeah, I guess we have, haven't we? Do you commit adultery? Oh, yeah, I guess we have. The last one's interesting. He says about idolatry, do you rob temples? It's hard to know exactly what he's referring to there. Some think he's talking about that they actually went to pagan temples and stole from those pagan temples, but that would be more stealing than it would be idolatry. Uh, The word there is actually just one word. It's a verb, those who rob temples. (laughs) And so the word temple doesn't need to be plural there. It's just actually an action, robbing a temple. And so I think what the Apostle Paul might be pointing out is that they had been unfaithful in their worship of God. They had been robbing their own temple in the sense that rather than giving God what he deserved, they'd been withholding. They'd been, well, you know, the offering should maybe be this much, but I'll keep back some of this for myself. And so committing idolatry by not worshiping God as the law had instructed them to. And so Paul points out each of these to help them understand that they're lawbreakers. Good for you that you know the law, you don't keep it. And all of this has led in verses 23 and 24, first of all, to God being dishonored and to the name of God being blasphemed among the Gentiles. They were proud that they had this special relationship with God, but they'd ruined that by their law-breaking. And they were proud that they were a light to the Gentiles, but they'd ruined that by their law-breaking. Paul is tearing away, tearing away their pride, tearing away their confidence in themselves, helping them to see that they've been hypocritical, helping them to see that the very things they put their confidence in are the very things that condemn them. Relying on our grasp of God's word only highlights our sinful hypocrisy. And as Christians, it can be so tempting to do the same thing. Oh, I've studied the scriptures for years. I know them in and out. Quote the books of the Bible to you. I have it all down. I was getting lunch recently with a pastor friend of mine. And he was explaining that in their church recently, they've been, they've been working on scripture memorization. And uh, they didn't have a service where uh, members of the church who had memorized sections of Scripture could kind of get up and, and, and quote it uh, as an encouragement to others. Uh, and so one of the young guys in the church ha- had memorized, uh, I think, a chapter of, of Scripture and had, had gotten up and, and uh, quoted it. And somebody afterwards was talking with uh, the little guy and, hey, you did such a great job. That was awesome. And his response was really sweet. He said, uh, well, thank you. You know, I'm... I'm, just, I'm not as good as pastor is. I mean, he's a pastor. He has the whole Bible memorized. 
And my pastor friend was kind of like, boy, my, uh, <laughs> my qualifications just got a lot more difficult here. I got to start memorizing more scripture. You know? Pastors do not have the whole Bible memorized, right? But there's this tendency, right? As Christians, we can get this inflated view of ourselves. Well, I know the scriptures, yeah. I have, I have in and out. I can tell you what you need to know. I got it down, how the Christian life works. And especially the longer we live the Christian life, it can be tempting to let that kind of thinking creep in. That we, our, our understanding or our grasp of God's word somehow uh, makes us better. And again, we have to be careful. We have to understand that this is a heart issue because it is a privilege to have the Word. It is a good thing to know the Word. It is right to study it and to try to uh, arrange our lives according to its instructions. What's key here, what Paul is pointing out, is the heart attitude. If our hearts begin to drift and rely on the fact, trust in the fact, or have confidence in the fact that we know the word, then we've made ourselves hypocrites. Because it's the scriptures that reveal to us what God is like. And if that's what we're, if we're using them to gain confidence in ourselves, then we are misusing the word of God. This can creep into our Christian thinking in all sorts of ways. Are we, are we proud of our knowledge of God's Word, relying on our years of studying the Bible? 2 Timothy 3.7 condemns those that are always learning but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Meaning, am I always studying the Scriptures but it's not changing me? It's not humbling me. It's not making me more like Jesus. I've known many in the church who love God's Word and know God's Word well, but all they use it for is to instruct others. They remain blind to their own need for change, hard-hearted, not letting the Scriptures penetrate their own lives. This is tempting even as we listen to sermons. I've sat through so many sermons, and my thoughts first go to the other people that really need to hear this right? Oh, that the Lord would give us tender hearts that are always, always looking at the scriptures with the sense of, oh, I need this. Sure, there might be others who need it too, but I need this. Lord, humble me. This is what the word is intended to do. Christians can do this as well by knowing the letter of the scriptures, knowing the letter of the law, if we wanted to put it that way, but our hearts can be far from it. This happens when we focus on the lines of Scripture. And we live our lives in terms of what do I have to do? What am I not allowed to do? You know, living as close to the lines as possible. Just tell me what I can and can't do. Missing the heart of Scripture that we would love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Sometimes we can even rely on our mental intellectual understanding of the gospel and of the scriptures without actually loving the Savior on whom we depend? Are we blind to the sins we are committing? Friends, there is so much blindness rooted in our hearts. This was maybe the most impactful on me this week, thinking through this passage. It's so easy in the Christian life uh, to see how others are acting and to kind of get frustrated with them. You ever notice that? Maybe I'm the only one who experiences that, but you, you see ways that others are sinning, things they're doing wrong, decisions they're making. is just, oh man, that is so frustrating. I can't believe they're doing that. And, and there's a place for, for sin being something that we abhor, right? It's, a, it's evil. But we have to be quick to acknowledge that as I get so frustrated with people, others for sinning, that the likelihood is I'm blind to it in my own life as well. So something I was trying to do this week is, if that happens, where I, I'm frustrated with an action of somebody else, that I, that I stop thinking about it and instead begin searching for where the same thing might be in my own life. Am I, am I doing the same kind of thing anywhere, Lord, because I don't want to be? And usually I can find it. It's in there. And usually my frustration with what they're doing is actually an outworking of my own guilt and pride Missing my own sin. And so to search our hearts, to recognize that the likelihood is I'm blind to it. And to, to ask our friends, do you see this in me? 
Can you help me? I don't want it. I don't want it to be there. The, the, the scriptures are meant to, to help us become more like Jesus, not to give us confidence in ourselves, but to give us confidence in Him. So relying on our grasp of God word, God's Word only highlights our sinful hypocrisy. The more proud we are of our grasp of scriptures, the more we've missed the point. And it just reveals hypocrisy. Number two, Relying on our outward religious identity only proves our sinful hearts. Paul has just addressed the, the confidence of the Jews in their possession of the law. We know it, we study it, we're teachers, we're guides to the blinds, we've got the scriptures. We know them in and out. Ah, but do you do them? Nope. Now the Apostle Paul moves to their very identity. We're actually going deeper here. The first was kind of the Mosaic Law, uh, the Ten Commandments, and all that came out of their Mosaic Covenant relationship with God. Now he goes further back in their history to the time of Abraham, when, when people were first called by God. Abraham was the first one. And that's part of the, the pride of the Jews, is that they're descendants of Abraham. Back in Genesis chapter 12, God first reached into Abraham's life with that call, go to a land that I will show you. And Abraham believed God and went where God commanded him. And then there's this establishment of this relationship between God and Abraham. And God gave Abraham that beautiful promise, right? I will bless you and in you all nations will be blessed. And your, your people will be like the stars of the sky and Promise to give him land and so forth. These rich promises of the Jewish people. In Genesis chapter 17, after Abraham had believed God and God had accounted it to him for righteousness, after that, God gave Abraham a sign of their covenant relationship, a sign of what it meant to be a member of Israel. Remember, the people of God are descendant of Israel. That sign was circumcision. And it was just an outward thing meant to point out, ah, these are the descendants of Abraham. These are the people of God. And so in this section, the Apostle Paul is going to address circumcision, but he's doing it to address their pride of identity. That, that in the flesh, they're a descendant of Abraham, and so that's supposed to uh, excuse them or exempt them from God's judgment, right? He said he would bless us, but what Paul's going to point out is that they've missed the whole point of the Abrahamic covenant. It was not about an outward sign. It's not about a genealogy. It was about Abraham's heart in believing God and relationship with God. And so this is what we're going to address here, their, their religious identity as Jews. And we can certainly think of ways that we find pride in our own religious identity as well. So we pick it up again in verse 25. For circumcision, your identity as a Jew, is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. He's saying it's, if you're not going to keep the law, it's basically pointless for you to be called a Jew. Now remember, in all of the, or the end of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 and in the beginning of chapter 3, we're over here in this category of pre-salvation. This is law. If you want to relate to God through the law, here's how it works. You've got to keep it perfectly. It's the only way to be righteous. Remember, we talked about this last week. Now, we're going to come to a new section called gospel, where we just admit, okay, I failed the other category, <laughs> Jesus is my Savior. I need Him. Okay? And so we're going to get to that in chapter 3. But here in chapter 2, he's still kind of living over here in this category of law, saying, okay, you want to claim your possession of the Scriptures? You want to claim your identity as a Jew? Let's see how you hold up. Have you kept the law perfectly? No. Well then, it doesn't really matter if you're identified as a Jew or not. You're still a lawbreaker. Right? So this is what he's pointing out. Verse 26, therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirement of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? So over here again, if somebody who's not identified as a Jew keeps the law perfectly, won't they be seen as righteous? Sure. It really doesn't matter whether they're circumcised, whether they're a descendant of Abraham. If they're perfectly righteous, they're perfectly righteous. So he's pointing out to them, your logic falls apart. Verse 27, 
And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? So the righteous one will judge the unrighteous one. So he's saying, look, somebody who's not even a Jew, if they're righteous, will judge you for being unrighteous and not keeping the very law that you take pride in. And he's pulling away all the layers of their hypocrisy here. Verse 28 and 29 makes it really clear for us. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men but from God. Paul is pointing out that the people of God were always intended to be in unique relationship with God. That it wasn't about their DNA or their heritage as a descendant of Abraham. What was special between God and Abraham was that Abraham believed God <laughs> and they had relationship. And the people had lost sight of that. It became all about the outward and their hearts were far from the Lord. And Paul is pointing out, no, salvation, relationship with God has always been about the heart. You can go to any number of places in the law, and what God highlights in the law as the primary thing is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your strength, right? This is what God intended, that they would be in relationship with him. The law merely gave them a way to help maintain that relationship, to cover their sin and to walk in fellowship with God. But they completely lost sight of that. They become proud of their identity as descendants of Abraham and had no love for God. They had strayed and pride had done it. Relying on their outward religious identity had just revealed that their hearts were far from the Lord. And as the end of verse 29 points out so clearly, their praise should be from God, not from men, but the Jews had reversed it. They were all about the praise of men rather than the praise of God. Now, I want to be clear here. The, the Apostle Paul is not just trying to be a, a Jew hater here. He's addressing the strong temptations for those who have been brought into relationship with God. And these are things that any one of us as Christians could struggle with as well. And so we need to read this with great humility that says, Oh Lord, guard us from pride or confidence or trusting in our religious identity. Because it only proves our sinful hearts. I remember interacting with one Christian servant who uh, I, I was talking with them about something that had been going on in, in their ministry life and I, I kind of pushed back on something that they did and said, well, you know, I, I don't know that that's the right way to handle that. Let's look at what the scripture says together. Let's think this through. I think there may be a better way to handle this. And immediately there was a strong reaction and they began to talk to me about all the things they had done in ministry and how long they'd been serving the Lord and that I, I really shouldn't be questioning their actions. And, and come to find out, they began to actually speak poorly of me to other uh, contacts that we both had. And I heard from another party, they said that you did this. What? <laughs> what happened in a scenario like that? The individual, the, the Christian servant had become so confident in their position, in the things they'd done for Christ, that there was no room. Maybe I was wrong, but still, there ought to be room in a Christian to, to listen, to open the Scriptures together and say, let's take a look at it. Let's see if there's any truth there. Oh, may the Lord reveal any blindness that's in my own heart. Because my dependence is not on how long I've served or what I've done for God. It's just Jesus and he has the right any time in my life to bring his servants into my life and to point out where I've gone astray. May we all have the humility to receive that well. See, relying on our outward religious identity only further reveals our sinful hearts. We, we claim, I'm a child of God, but then we do what we want. We say, I love Jesus, but then we won't obey him. 
We say, I believe Jesus died for my sins and rose again, but then we won't follow him. We claim our eternal inheritance in his kingdom, but then we still are greedy on this earth. We take great pride in the fact that we will reign with him forever, but we won't let him reign in our hearts today. We look to our baptism or how long we've taught Sunday school or how much we give. We rely on so many aspects of our religious identity. But I wonder if our hearts are far from the Lord. The message that Paul brings to the Jews here is is one that ought to humble all of us because the temptation is there. It's not wrong to to rejoice and hope in the wonderful things that God has done in the gospel. It's good to rejoice that by trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, I've been made a child of God. But oh, that God would guard our hearts from becoming proud of that, as if I deserved it. No, our claim is only Jesus. Maybe the clearest sign is the phrase at the end of verse 29. Am I seeking praise from men or is it all about praise from God? Now, that's a phrase we don't use very often. But it's referring to the fact that we'll all stand before the Lord and on that day, I want Him to be able to say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. And it's right for a Christian to humbly seek that pleasure in our Lord, where he would say, well done, you serve me faithfully. It's right for us to seek that. And in fact, that ought to be all we seek in this life. Oh, that the Lord would be pleased with the way we've lived our lives. And that we would be protected from seeking praise from men. These are the two categories. And again, he's addressing their hearts here. They've relied on the outward. They've wanted praise from men and they've totally forgotten their God with no love for him, no desire for his honor and glory in their lives. This leads us to the final section in verses one through eight of chapter three, where we see that relying on our efforts to excuse ourselves only insults God's justice. Now, this section can be a little harder to track with, so I'm going to try to break it down for you clearly because it's written in kind of an argumentative form. And the Apostle Paul is inserting what we could consider um, maybe objections from this um, made-up Jewish person that he's conversing with here, right? So Paul has brought all these claims against him, and so now it's almost like we're going to get some questions back from this person, and then Paul's going to answer them with phrases like, certainly not, or never, may it never be, and so hopefully we can track along with his argument here. But, But here's what I really want you to catch. What this made-up Jewish opponent is doing is they're taking truths from Scripture and they're sort of in a twisted way using the Scriptures to excuse themselves, to defend themselves. In fact, they're going to say something like, well, if my unrighteousness over here, the fact that I didn't keep the law perfectly, will ultimately reveal God's justice in the future... Isn't what I'm doing actually helping to reveal God's glory? Right? So if my unrighteousness is just going to reveal His justice later, then isn't it okay? Why should I receive the wrath of God if my unrighteousness will just reveal His justice and faithfulness and goodness on the final day? Right? So you see how suddenly the truths of Scripture are twisted into this trying to excuse themselves. So that's the key here. It's this effort to excuse themselves. So let's track along with what he says. First of all, verse 1, what advantage then has the Jew or what profit, uh, what is the profit of circumcision? It's almost like Paul makes, wants to make sure the reader's not thinking he's just attacking Jews, that there's nothing good about having the word of God or, or, or being a Jew. And so in verse 2, he says, well, actually, much in every way, it's a really good thing, chiefly because they have the oracles of God or the sayings of God. I mean, what a privilege, Paul's pointing out, what a privilege to have the scriptures, They heard from God, and so indeed, it was a privilege, but it was not responded to the way it should have been. So in verse 3, we have another question. Well, what if some, some of those who received 
the sayings of God, what if some uh, did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? So this goes back to God's relationship with Israel. God had made a covenant both with Abraham and then later with Moses, with his people of Israel. And so now the logic is, well, if God made these covenants with us in the law through Abraham, uh, but, but some of, you're saying that some of the Jews won't be saved because they haven't believed? Is that what you're saying, Paul? Does that mean God's unfaithful? Do you see the line of reasoning there? If God gave us the Scriptures, are you saying the Scriptures weren't effective to save all of us? That God's not good enough or powerful enough or faithful enough to save all of us? This is kind of God's fault, is where the line of reasoning is going. Well, how does Paul respond to that? (laughs) Verse 4, certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. I love that statement. (laughs) Paul's response is just strong. No way. You want to question God? God is truth, and every one of us is a liar. And that's also true. If you think about it, we've all lied, deceived, held back the truth, you name it. Okay, so he's just making it clear here. You try to twist the scriptures to claim God's in the wrong here, that doesn't work. You're wrong. God's the one who is true. God's the one who's right. And then he quotes the scriptures to confirm as they try to twist the scriptures to be excused, Paul quotes the scriptures accurately to say that God is indeed just. And this actually comes from Psalm 51, David's confession to God after his own sin, where he says that you, God, may be justified in your words and may overcome uh, when you are judged. That last phrase, when you are judged, in the New King James is translated as passive, when you are judged. But the the original words could be translated either passive or another voice, middle, which makes it more active. And I think that's a better translation. It's what's in Psalm 51, that you may overcome when you judge. And so what David is saying in Psalm 51 and what Paul is highlighting here is that David, when he sinned, he didn't twist the scriptures and say, well, God, actually, you're being unfaithful to me. You should have kept me from sinning, and my sin actually just highlights your justice, right? David didn't say that. So Paul quotes David to show, no, what did David do when he sinned? He humbled himself. He bowed before the judge of the earth, and he said that you may be justified. I confess I was wrong so that you are proved right and that you overcome when you judge. See, God's the victor. That's what confession does. So I think Paul's trying to help the, the, the Jewish person here see the right response. Confess, repent. But using the scriptures to defend yourself is not the right path. Verse 5, another objection from our made-up Jewish friend. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? Paul inserts a little reminder so we know he's making up this made-up argument, I speak as a man, right? (laughs) This is not what I think. This is the objection coming from the made-up party here. Do you follow his logic? If our unrighteousness ends up proving that God is righteous, why should we be judged for that? We're just showing that God is righteous by our unrighteousness. (laughs) So Paul responds in verse 6, Certainly not, for then how will God judge the world? This is interestingly seems to be a reference to Genesis 18. In Genesis 18, God has come to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham and God have a conversation, and Abraham actually points out in that conversation his own confidence that the judge of all the earth will do right. Really cool statement in this conversation between him and God. The judge of all the earth will do right. And it's interesting that it's in Genesis 18 because Genesis 17 is where the outward sign of the Jewish covenant, circumcision, was first implemented. And so it's almost as if Paul is pointing back to the early history of the Jews and saying, no, 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 it's not circumcision. It's not your outward identity the Jew that makes you special. It's your relationship with God that you trust that he will do what is right. 
So now you're, 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 you're eroding his justice here. You're saying that by your unrighteousness, you prove he's righteous, and so somehow God's not just for, for punishing you? Wrong. The judge of all the earth always does what is right. Okay, one more objection in verse 7. For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? This is awesome stuff. The Apostle Paul has actually taken their twisted logic, which started way back in verses 3 and 5, where they say, well, if our doing bad things reveals the righteousness of God, then why should we be judged? He's taken that logic all the way to its end. And the end of that logic is what we read at the beginning of verse 8. Let us do evil that good may come. Now, now no person who called themselves a Jew would ever want to say something like that. Okay? They did want to keep the law. That's, you know, they were proud, thinking that they did, but they did want to. And so a statement like that would have just, at that point now, would have just shocked them. And Paul's kind of saying, look, this is the end of your logic, that you're going to do evil in order that good may come. And, and they would just wholeheartedly disagree with that. So Paul is using their own logic to help them see the own, their own blindness to the way they're twisting scriptures and trying to excuse themselves. And in fact, he says in verse 8, as we are slanderously reported and some affirm that we say their condemnation is just. Paul points out at the end of verse 8 that some of his opponents are actually making this claim against him. Now he's going to address this later in Romans chapter 6. Should we sin more that grace may abound? Now, who were his opponents? His opponents were often Jews. And so they'd actually brought this claim against him. Paul, you just teach that we should just do evil and good will come. Sin, that grace may abound. Now, Paul's going to totally destroy that. No, certainly not. We should not live that way. But what he's done here is he's actually turned it on his accusers and said that by, by living how you want, by committing all this unrighteousness and claiming that you should not be judged by God, you're actually promoting the same thing you're condemning in me. He's just destroyed their argument and shown them that their hearts have the very same evil they're condemning in others. It's wickedness. Their use of the scripture to try to defend themselves and their own unrighteousness has only further condemned them and insulted God's justice. They are without excuse, as the conclusion will come at the end of chapter 3. We like to make excuses, don't we? I remember uh, at one uh, occasion, we had a specific start time, and one of the members of our group uh, arrived late, like 15 to 20 minutes late. And, uh, you know, it was no big deal, but I remember talking to them afterwards, you know, they walked up to me, and I was like, hey, everything okay? What happened? And... Like, oh, my knee blew out. I'm like, okay, well, they, they just walked up to me. It's kind of like, uh, all right, well, it's looking okay now. What happened, you know? It's like, well, yeah, I was just walking across the grass to get to our meeting. I would have been on time, and I hit a, hit a hole, and, and my knee just blew out. And, uh, and so, uh, well, so what, what happened next? Well, I just decided I'd sit there for a while. And so I sat there in the grass because uh, my knee had blown out. Well, you could have called me. Would come help you or something like that? No, I just thought I'd see if it wore off. And, and sure enough, it did. My knee's fine. Uh, it's like, oh, okay, all right. You know, it's like the story was getting more difficult and more difficult to, to buy the longer it went, right? It's like, well, do you need some ice or anything? No, no, it's, it's fine. It was just a temporary thing. It's like, okay, well, it's no big deal that you were late. And if you need anything with your knee, you know, just like, kind of left scratching my head like, uh, all right, I'm not really sure what happened there, but as a reminder to me, we like to make excuses, don't we? we? We don't like to bear the weight of our sin. We like to point the fingers at others. We like to uh, blame shift. We like to say, well, you know, it was justified. This is exactly what they're doing. In fact, just like the Jews in this text, sometimes we use the scriptures even to defend ourselves and our actions. The problem that Paul attacks in these verses is not confined to the people of God, even of his day. 
All too often we Christians have presumed that God's grace to us exempts us from any concern about our sin. And so we excuse ourselves. It's okay for us to do this or to do that. And we, we blame it on, well, it's all been paid for on the cross, so what's the big deal? I've done this much for the Lord, I think I've earned a little bit of reward. Or we point the finger to others, they did this, and that's why I responded in the way I did. But all of these things only further prove our own blindness to God's justice and the hardness of our hearts. As Paul has been bringing to the surface through this text Those of us involved with religious activity can be easily tempted to have confidence in our religious performance instead of just trusting in the one who saved us himself. The question is, what are we relying on today? Maybe you're here today and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. You've kind of always thought things were pretty good between you and God. You've always been a religious person. Maybe you were raised in a home where you went to church regularly and a love for God was promoted in the home. And so you've kind of adopted that in your life too. Go to church regularly and Try to speak well of religion and religious things and try to do good when you have opportunity and maybe you've even found ways to to volunteer, to serve others, to give towards charities and towards the church and so forth. Well, those are all fine things, but what Paul has pointed out in this text is that those are not saving things. Religious performance cannot make us righteous before God. The, the question that Paul comes back to in, in option number one here with the law is, it really only comes down to, did you keep the law perfectly? And the answer we all have to honestly say is, no, I didn't. I failed that means of righteousness. It's done. It's over. I ruined it. It's gone. And I deserve God's just wrath for my sin. This is what the scriptures reveal. And all of this is pointing to the good news, which again, we haven't come to yet in our text. But it's such good news that though we are unrighteous, God made a way that he could righteously make us righteous by sending his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for my sins. Jesus paid for my unrighteousness. So nobody's pretending that I was righteous because I wasn't. Jesus had to feel the cost of my unrighteousness. He paid for it in my place. He died in my place and rose again. And through his death for my sins and resurrection, God offers cleansing of sin and divine righteousness for the one who has faith in Jesus. And so it becomes clear to us that it's not about performance over here. It's about faith. Just trust Jesus, who died for my sins and rose again. What claim do I have before the Lord? Nothing save Jesus. He paid for my sins. So friend, if you've been depending on your religious actions, that you've always been a part of the people of God, and you've always gone to church, and you've always been close with God, you've always had a love for Him, let me tell you that that will not stand on the judgment day. If you've done any unrighteousness, then your outward performance will never be enough. Only Jesus can save you. And so today, would you stop working? Trying to perform religiously? Would you you stop and just trust in Jesus? He did it for you. I know it's hard for our minds to grasp, but it's actually the most humbling and joyful thing in the whole world to say that I can't do it, but Jesus did it for me, and I need to trust him. Would you trust him today? Christian, maybe you've been there where you trusted in Christ as Savior and just amazed at the gospel and what Jesus did for you, and you've believed, but you've kind of drifted back into this law-keeping pride 
where you've begun to live again in a way that's relying on your religious performance. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about that imaginary chart, right, where you as the stick figure are here, and God is up here, and your sin is down here. And what Paul is doing in these texts is, is he's helping us increase our view of God's holiness up here, and he's lowering our view of our sin and ourselves. And what that does is it increases the gap between God and us. It's already huge, but it increases our view of that gap. So that the thing that spans the gap, the love of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you could picture it with a cross there if you wanted to, or a big heart. It's the gospel, right? What Jesus did for us. That's what spans the gap and saves us from our sin. It gets larger and larger and larger in our eyes the more we see God's holiness and the more we see our sinfulness. And that's what Paul's doing here. But he's also pointing out how as the religious, there's another way that we can sort of diminish the size of the cross. And it's by either trying to pretend that our sin's not really there, just kind of covering it up, right? Nah, I'm a pretty good person. I don't, that's not really sin, you know, it's just, and so down there in the pretending category, our sin's not as low as it really is. It's, oh, it's just, I'm better than most people think. The other thing we do is we diminish God's holiness by trying to perform ourselves. That's really what he attacks in this passage. There's confidence in me. Yeah, the gospel's great, but I mean, I kind of added to it a little bit by the way that I've live the Christian life and how all the things I've done for the Lord and our trying to perform ends up diminishing the gospel in our view. So back to our question from the beginning. How do you know you're saved? How do you know that on the judgment day when you stand before a holy God that you won't be condemned for eternity? What's saving you from your sin? Is it your efforts, your activities, a prayer you prayed, the fact that you walked the aisle? At the end of the day, there's only one answer to that question. Jesus. He died for my sins and rose again. His blood paid for the infinite unrighteousness that I committed against God conquered my sin and death. He's my only hope. That's it. That's it. May the Lord keep us from drifting into pride and hardness of heart that doesn't keep confessing our sin and bowing before His mercy for saving us. May we never become proud in our grasp of the Scriptures or overconfident in our Christian identity, but always humbly grateful to God for saving us sinners. Lord, have mercy. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.